0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take the blinders off the heart of this preacher and the blinders off the heart of this congregation, that we would see Jesus and that he would be more beautiful and believable to us today. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you have observed this shift in sports culture advertising, maybe over the last 30 to 40 years, but evidently in the olden days when TV or even online, they were advertising a game that was happening it would be advertised as team versus team. Maybe you'd see one team's logo and another team's logo, a jersey and a jersey or a helmet and a helmet. But lately, you know, maybe since the dawn of the 80s and 90s, oftentimes in advertising, you see held up a particular person who represents the whole of that team against you know, another person. Like in the Super Bowl last week, we didn't necessarily see just the Philadelphia Eagles versus the New England Patriots. We saw Tom Brady versus Nick Foles. Or you don't just see any more Golden State Warriors against the Cleveland Cavaliers. You see LeBron James versus Stephen Curry. And this kind of celebrity culture that has emerged that sort of makes us think of sports in terms of these individuals, these celebrities. And I concede it's kind of a bit of an overstatement, but first century Corinth, where Paul was was writing uh, this letter, it had its own kind of sports celebrity culture in a way, except their public battlegrounds weren't stadiums, but covered porticos called stoa. And their celebrities weren't skilled quarterbacks or great ball handlers, but great orators and rhetoricians. People would gather around these stoa To hear local and visiting celebrities who would wax eloquent in order to persuade others of their ideas. And Corinthian culture, kind of like our culture, was conditioned to think in these kind of celebrity speaker categories. And it would make sense that when Paul originally came to the city of Corinth, he would step into this cultural scene as a way of proclaiming the gospel. Perhaps it was through these very means that Paul found inroads and planted the Corinthian church that he would write to only three or so years later. Whether or not this scenario paints the picture of the planting of the Corinthian church, it certainly has come into play as the church grew over the next few years such that Paul, in this, his second letter to the Corinthians, finds himself having to spar with his persuasive opponents. These opponents had come to the Corinthian church and made claims that Paul wasn't preaching the truth, that he was mishandling the scriptures, tampering with the word of God. And so Paul precedes today's verses with these lines. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves and everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's basically saying, when we proclaim the good news to you, we weren't interested in playing the game. Others might be trying to suck us into that game, but we're not playing it. We're not gonna try to persuade you with fancy language or a great performance. We're going to instead preach the truth to you plainly, simply, and humbly, and let the chips fall where they may. Now, Paul's opponents were lodging some pretty specific accusations. Evidently, they were accusing Paul of veiling the gospel in the way that he interpreted the scriptures through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when I say scriptures, I mean particularly the scriptures of the day, the Old Testament's. This is why in the previous chapter to ours, Paul takes us on a journey through the work of what the reformers would call law and gospel in the Old Testament, climaxing with the idea that to see Christ in the Old Testament is to actually have the veil taken away. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, that to behold Christ in this way is to actually receive the transformative power of God in your life through the work of the Holy Spirit But after these defensive maneuvers, arguing that the apostles' teaching actually unveils the gospel, he goes on the offensive here in our passage, showing his opponents to actually be the ones who have the veil over their eyes. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And this is where all this stuff that happened almost 2,000 years ago starts to hit us really fast. Listen to this. Because according to our passage today, it's evidently possible to get so wrapped up in what seems right, in what seems religious, that we actually lose sight of the gospel itself. And when we lose the gospel, we lose everything. Let's put it another way. It's possible for someone to be caught up in Christian practices, to attend church every week, to reflect a deep piety, full of righteous observances and faithful commitments, and yet, in spite of all of these things or even more scary because of these things, this very person can be blinded to the gospel that actually saves them from perishing. Paul's opponents, they were obviously deeply religious people. They knew their Bibles. They were obviously rooted in faithful, historic practices. And yet, Paul says, they missed it. So what's the difference? The scriptures declare today that the difference is in the beholding. The difference is in the glory. Chapter 3, verse 18 again said, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And our reading declares today in verse 6 that this glory is to be found in the face of Jesus Christ. Beholding the glory of the face of Jesus, that's what transforms you and me into that same glory. All this means... That we could actually spend a lifetime going through the Jesus motions, worship services, acts of Christian service like benevolent philanthropic giving, or pious Christian behavior like guarding our tongue, or remaining faithful to our spouse, or seeking after justice, or being good children to our parents or even filling our minds with the wonderful knowledge of the Bible like Paul's opponents did. We can play church. We can play the Christian. We can become completely conformed outwardly to Christianity, but we miss the glory. God, Paul says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Like you and like me, Paul's Corinthian audience hasn't literally seen the face of Jesus, and yet somehow Paul is able to say that God, by the word of his mouth, the same God who created light by saying, let there be light, is able to cause, to stage a viewing of the face of Jesus Christ in our hearts. This is amazing. The Christian is characterized as one who has seen the shining face of Christ. I remember the first time in my life when God staged a viewing of the shining face of Christ in my heart. February 1988, I heard in the middle of a church service just like this one, a minister was preaching, and I felt God reach into my heart and say, Zach, I'm talking to you. Give it up. You're a sinner, and you need me. Look on who Jesus is and what he's done. Believe in him and what he's done for you. Now, I didn't see Jesus' actual face, but I felt the strong, gaping hole of my need. And set before my spiritual eyes was the satisfaction of that need, the cross of Jesus Christ and the face of the one who died for me, conviction that came over me. And it was as though that day for me the chains fell off, as with God-given spiritual eyes I gazed upon the cross. And I ask you today, have you seen that face? Is this your experience? Are you here today merely to settle for a pretty building and some wonderful centuries-old music and liturgy? I say merely because as good as those things are, they pale in comparison to the face of Christ. In fact, those beautiful things, anthems, architecture, hymns, liturgy, they only exist in the church in order to point you to that very face. They exist to preach, to preach to you that Lord. And the question is, therefore, if you're not seeing the face of Christ, If you're not overwhelmed by Him, well, what are you seeing? Again, what does it mean to see the face of Christ? It means, as it says in verse 4, seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. We could say that the Christian life, the true Christian life, is one of repeated and ongoing gospel viewings, glory moments where Christ in his work of life and death is put on display in a fresh, vivid, and powerful way. Is your life marked by the blinding brilliance of Christ in this way? I tell you this, the glory of the gospel in our life, the brilliance of the face of Christ in our life is directly proportional to our awareness of our own sin. It's like the difference between you walking into your bedroom in the middle of the day, broad daylight, curtains drawn back, and then flicking on the light. The light isn't that bright to you. But if someone were to wake you up at 2 a.m. in the middle of the night by flicking on that same light, it would be blinding. Same light, same wattage. What's the difference? The difference is that when you were sleeping, And that light was turned on in the utter darkness. Your shut eyes, your dilated pupils, a black room, and a black night sky out of that window. That was the difference. The brilliance of Christ's face only has that kind of shock factor when set in the context of the darkness of your sin. So here's the deal. If you don't think you're very sinful, Christ's face won't be very bright. To you, If you're not aware of just how fallen, just how twisted, just how selfish, just how curved in on yourself you are, the gospel won't appear very stunning. And this is the essence of the veil. This is the essence of spiritual blindness. This is why a person can come to worship week in and week out and sing a glorious hymn about the blood of Jesus with a dead-panned heart. It's why a person can come to worship week in and week out and hear the words, if any man sin, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and find those words as dull as a recitation of the phone book. It's why we can come to the table and miss the brilliance, the light of These words coming at us. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Spiritual blindness. And I'll tell you one great symptom of spiritual blindness that I've seen in my life over and over again is judgmentalism. I found that there have been seasons of my life where I would glory in judging others, their politics, their immorality, their bad decisions their poor health choices, their cultural background, and on and on. And what I've noticed in my own soul in judging others is that it's often a way that I've hidden or avoided the own judgments that haunt me and name me for who I am, a sinner, a miserable offender. Pressing others down gives me a false sense of elevation above others and blinds me to my own wretchedness. And look at how twisted this gets in my own life. Not only do I get on the social media to declare my judgment on my fellow human beings with a post or a tweet, probably more of the time is spent thumbing through those same feeds, judging others for writing their own judgmental posts. God, help me. And so imagine with me when someone doesn't recognize just how sinful they truly are. What need do I have of the saving blood of Jesus Christ in my life? What need do I have of his death for my sin, his resurrection for my justification? Do you see? Small sin, small gospel, big sin, big gospel. The glory of the face of Jesus Christ will only be as bright to you as your sin is dark to you. But our passage today reveals yet another source of spiritual blindness. Verse 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. This means that while you and I are busy whitewashing our barns filled with sin. Satan and his hellish crew are happy to pick up their roller brushes and paint cans right alongside us. You know, we tend to think of the work of the devil as the diabolical work that Hollywood portrays, possessing people, tempting people to commit horrible and unspeakable acts, haunting people, frightening people. But here and elsewhere, we learn that his work is even more insidious than this. In this regard, the work of Satan looks a lot less like Halloween and a lot more like, well, church, piety, morals, justice, generosity, all devoid of a need for Jesus. The devil would not only be the one to tempt us into sin, but he's the one who to, seeks to, to blind us from our own sinfulness so as to make the glory of Christ dull or even unintelligible. You see, for non-Christians and for unbelievers, it's not so much that the gospel is unbelievable. It's that the gospel is irrelevant. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Okay, fine, whatever. This is often why those who don't believe in Jesus never come to faith until their life Completely unravels until they're flat on their back, until the carnage of their own sin, combined with the devastation of other people's sin, has left them unable to look anywhere but up. The truly disturbing thing, though, is that Paul is addressing all these thoughts not to the world at large, but to the people in the church in Corinth. He's saying to Corinth, You will continue to preach the gospel in and to and through the church. And the people who hear it, they're going to be a mixed bag. Some of them will be blown away by the glory of Christ. They'll have the veil taken away. But others will continue to have the veil over their eyes and over their hearts. Some will be able to testify, I woke and the dungeon flamed with light and my chains fell off and my heart was free." while others will remain maybe vigorously religious and yet unmoved. This is a really sobering thought. But the word of God is indeed powerful. Second Corinthians 4, it ultimately gives us a glimpse into the nature and the power of the word. Our passage today makes references and forces us to flip back to the very first pages of our Bible in Genesis 1, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says that the God who was able to create light simply by speaking it into existence, let there be light, simply by saying it, there was light. God didn't need an artist's studio or a chemist's laboratory or a manufacturing plant. Just his word had that kind of power. Paul says that the God who is able to make physical light in this way creates spiritual light in the very self-same way. And that very word is present now. It is present here to do a work of recreation. The new heavens and the new earth are being recreated right here, right now, right in this room even. Whoever you are, God would create in you spiritual light in your heart, right here and right now. And this God declares, let there be light. Behold, the brilliance of my son. Behold, the one in whom I am well pleased. Behold, he dies on a cross for you. And yes, he dies on a cross Even for your spiritual blindness, he dies. He dies for you. And he is raised for you. He's ascended to plead his merits at the right hand of God the Father for you. And so, isn't it interesting that we find ourselves in the last Sunday of Epiphany? Lent is just around the corner, three days away. Isn't it interesting? That Lent is a twofold journey. First, one of taking inventory of the dark backdrop of our sin. And two, a slow and steady walk to the light of the glory of the cross and the resurrection. Maybe, just maybe, Lent will be for us the epiphany of the epiphany, the great aha of why Jesus came. And if so, let there be light. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.